Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Today, we're going to go deep, deep into the world's rainforests, from Brazil to Indonesia to the Democratic Republic of Congo. The international picture is mixed. On balance, the lungs of the world are heading for crisis, and soon. Later, our obituaries editor will reflect on the life of Oe Kenzaburo, Nobel Prize-winning Japanese author whose genius was born of family crisis and whose career was dedicated to giving a voice to the voiceless. But first, we're going into the Amazon. It's a key moment right now for the Amazon rainforest. Sarah Maslin is The Economist's Brazil correspondent. 60% of the Amazon is in Brazil, and until January 1st, it had a president, Jair Bolsonaro, who didn't care at all about environmental protections. Depende do parlamento, vão sofrer pressões dos ambientalistas? Ah, esse pessoal do meio ambiente, né? Se um dia eu puder, eu confino-os na Amazônia, já que eles gostam tanto do meio ambiente. When Bolsonaro took office in 2019, he sabotaged efforts to curb illegal logging and mining. He cut the Environment Ministry's budget. He halted the imposition of fines for forest-related crimes. He ordered the ministry's enforcement agency to stop destroying equipment used to chop down trees and dredge up gold from the soil. The result was not pretty. During Bolsonaro's time in office, deforestation in the Amazon jumped by 60%. But with his presidency over, his successor, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, has promised big changes. He was greeted like a rock star at COP27 last year. Mostly because of his success slowing deforestation when he was last president in the mid-2000s. But once you get on the ground in the Amazon, it's clear that undoing all the damage that has happened in recent years won't be easy. I'm in the frontier town of Itaituba on the Tapajós River in the Brazilian Amazon. It's a dusty town that's economy is mostly based on wildcat mining or garimpo. Almost all of it is illegal either because it's happening in protected areas like national forests or indigenous reserves, or because the people who are mining haven't gotten the proper licenses and aren't following environmental rules like making sure mercury doesn't go into the rivers or reforesting the area after they've damaged it for the mines. But even though this is an illegal activity, 
There's no real effort to hide it here. There are stores all over selling excavators and other heavy machinery for the mines and billboards all over advertising internet services for Garimpo. There are also little shops all over that have signs saying, we buy gold. These are the places where the illegal gold begins to enter the legal market, often traveling on airplanes to Sao Paulo, where the real origins of it are hidden and a legal place is listed instead. I wanted to see just how entrenched illegal mining has become in the Amazon in recent years and how Lula's government will try to stop it. In the rainforest around Itaituba, there are thousands and thousands of illegal gold mines. When I visited one of these mines, I saw workers with hydraulic pumps dredging up the earth and a huge excavator used to carve away more and more of the soil. It's visually devastating a massive pit filled with brown, toxic-looking water where there should be forest. I spoke to the owner and workers. I asked them, what would happen if the government succeeds in cracking down so much that Garimpo is no longer viable? They said what most miners tell me. If mining collapses, there will be a social crisis. One of the miners said he doesn't know how to read or write. So that's the question. What to do with all these people who make a living from mining and logging and other activities that harm the forest? Two days later, I went on a raid with Brazil's National Parks Agency, ICMBio. The trucks we were traveling in left before dawn, their red, white, and blue police lights flashing. We had a unit of military police with us for protection. But the raid didn't go according to plan. After driving for seven hours and getting within five kilometers of the mine in a national park we were trying to bust, Two men on a motorbike emerged from the forest, spotted our convoy, and then turned around and sped off to alert the other miners. Our trucks gave chase, but got stuck in knee-deep mud and had to turn around. In the back of the truck I was in, the agents were commiserating. One of them told me that in a region so vast and so lawless as the Amazon, it's fácil de vencer o sistema, easy to beat the system. So, while it's worth celebrating that Brazil has a new government that says it's committed to protecting the rainforest, enforcement on the ground is a totally separate issue. 
In the long run, cracking down on deforesters is not going to work unless we figure out a way for them to make a living doing something else. And the problem of enforcement is not just a problem facing Brazil. The rainforests, the lungs of the world, are under threat. Robert Guest is a deputy editor at The Economist. This, on the face of it, makes no sense. The benefits of not cutting down rainforests are about 30 times greater than the benefits of cutting them down. So you'd think it would be relatively easy just to pay the people who own the rainforests not to cut them down, and everyone would be better off. But what you have, the biggest obstacle to protecting the rainforests, is the absence of the rule of law in the countries where there are rainforests. Can we dig a little deeper in that? What what exactly do you mean? Laws to protect rainforests are typically strict on paper. And if the rainforests were in countries where property rights were clear and the rule of law was enforced, then it would be relatively straightforward to pay the landowners to conserve the forests. But very often, the rainforests are in countries where property rights are not clear. So you don't really know who to pay to conserve the forests, and where the rule of law is incredibly patchy. So even if you do pay one guy not to chop down the forests, other people may come in with chainsaws and encroach on his land or may just chop down the trees regardless. And that's a huge problem. Very often you'll find that the areas that are being chopped down are remote, so it's very difficult to get police enforcement there, as Sarah found in Brazil. So rainforests tend to be in countries where either the political will to enforce the law is lacking, as it was in Brazil under Jair Bolsonaro, or where the institutions to enforce the law are rickety. So you don't have functioning court systems, or they've been captured by the local landowners, or the police are corruptible, or the police simply don't have the manpower to get out there into the areas where the deforestation is taking place. And clearly, that's a number of countries that stretch beyond Brazil, where we we heard Sarah's reporting. Well, unfortunately, that's most of the countries that have rainforests. We looked at the really big ones, the biggest three. So that's Brazil, Indonesia, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. And Brazil and Indonesia, you're talking patchy rule of law, even if it's improving. And in Congo, it's close to anarchy in parts of the country. All these countries, on paper, have pretty strict laws against chopping down rainforests illegally. They've also all signed up to a deal at the recent COP27 climate conference. The Global Forest and Climate Leaders Partnership, FCLP, will hold leaders accountable to their pledges and help to scale and accelerate action. Where they agreed that they would try and persuade the rest of the world to fund the preservation of their rainforests. But shoring up the rule of law sounds like a much more complicated business than simply writing better, stronger laws. Yes, strengthening the rule of law is a difficult long-term project, but it's something that you can do piecemeal, and there are examples of success. So, for example, in Brazil, there's been a dramatic change in the willingness at the very top to enforce the law, the shift from Bolsonaro to Lula. That's a big difference. And then in Indonesia, for A very long time, it was under a kleptocratic dictator called Suharto, who ruled from 1967 until 1998. And he was very happy to let his cronies take concessions to do logging and mining. And the whole process was incredibly corrupt. And after he was overthrown by big protests, there's been a gradual improvement 
of the rule of law. So it is now possible for big businesses to lose in court. It's possible for the government to lose in court. The companies operating have had to clean up their acts. And what does that cleaning up their act mean in practice? So we're seeing a slowing of the pace of deforestation there and a slowing of the burning of peatlands for agriculture. It's not perfect, but the process of democratization in Indonesia has strengthened the rule of law and it's made it so that the government and big palm oil firms sometimes lose in court, which was unheard of in Suharto's day. So although Indonesia's forests are still shrinking, the pace has slowed sharply in the past five years. And we've also seen firms in Indonesia responding to international pressure. So roughly four-fifths of the palm oil refining capacity there is owned by firms that have signed up to the no deforestation and no burning the peatlands pledge. So that's progress. It does sound like progress, but what about the third country that you mentioned at the outset, the Democratic Republic of Congo? Congo is a really tough one. The pace of deforestation there has so far been slower than in Brazil or Indonesia, but that's largely because the country is so poor that very few people can afford chainsaws. They're literally chopping down trees by hand in order to plant crops. But if modern mechanical means to slice down the trees become widely available in Congo before the country is able to regulate them, then an environmental disaster looms. And unfortunately, Congo is a very long way away from being able to regulate its entire territory. I mean, in rural areas, property rights barely exist. You know, there are dozens of militias. Villagers are used to being driven from their homes at gunpoint. And the writ of the government in large parts of the country, I mean, they just don't have any authority at all. So we've seen a big acceleration in Congo. Between 2016 and 2021, the country lost half a million hectares of primary forest every year, which was twice the the average recorded between 2002 and 2015. And so what's the the net picture here then? If things have gotten slightly better uh, under Lula in Brazil, have gotten better in Indonesia, but uh, clearly don't have great prospects in in Congo, what's the, the sort of the overall picture for the world's rainforests? I think the world is waking up to how important it is to protect its own lungs. And there are a lot of donors and companies that would really like to put money into preserving the rainforests, either as aid or as carbon offsets. But we haven't really figured out the mechanism yet. And the pace of carbon offset buying, for example, it kind of stalled last year because people weren't confident that the offsets that they were buying were really preserving as much land as they said they would. How then to move forward in a way that makes enforcement easier, but as we heard from Sarah, make sure that people can make a living if there's a crackdown? Do do you think there's a solution here? There's a lot of promise, I think, rather than having lots and lots of little projects, of having what they call jurisdictional carbon credits, where either a government or a company that wants to offset its pollution, instead of giving the money to a small project, uh, gives it to a larger jurisdiction, like a state or a province. And if you see improvements there, you could have very large sums of money transferred that way. And the advantage of that is if there are enough sums to be able to transform the local economy so that there are alternatives to wildcat mining or or chopping down trees, then it's more likely that the local population will support enforcement of the law 
And it's less likely that in a few years' time they'll vote for Mr. Bolsonaro or someone like that to come back to power. So more widely, how long do we have to get those sums of money you speak of on the sort of scale we're talking about here? It's very urgent that we sort this out. The benefits of preserving the rainforests are so much greater than the costs of doing so that humanity has to come up with an arrangement to do it at some point. The problem is time. There's a danger that some of the rainforests hit a tipping point where the ecosystem no longer functions properly. And there's one estimate that with the Amazon, that tipping point could come when it's lost maybe 20% or 25% of its primary cover. And we're at about 17% at the moment, so we really don't have much time. Robert, thank you very much for your time. Jason, thank you. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The house where Oye Kenzaburo lived in Tokyo was a tranquil place. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. And he liked to work in the living room, sitting comfortably in an armchair and writing in longhand. But he didn't work alone. In the same room, you would see a rather shambling, middle-aged man with a misshapen skull and crossed eyes who would be sorting and resorting his CD collection or perhaps listening to music, Mozart or Bach. Hikari's birth had been a great crisis in the family. He had been born with a cranial hernia so huge that it made him look as if he had two heads. Kentaburo Oye couldn't stand the sight of him, and he couldn't decide what to do, whether to let the baby die as the doctor recommended, or to let him have surgery which might still leave him deeply handicapped. He was unable to answer this dilemma, so he decided instead to run away and went to an anti-nuclear conference in Hiroshima. The city of Hiroshima lies prostrate after the withering blast which wiped out 53,000 of its population. Four square miles of buildings leveled by the first of two small bombs that decided the fate of Japan. The important thing about going there, as it turned out, was that he met people whose dilemmas were much more extreme than his own. 
He met women who had to decide whether or not to have children because they might well be born deformed. He met people who felt, after what had happened, that they had to decide between living and killing themselves. And he met doctors who had no idea how to treat their patients and simply didn't know what to do for the best, but had concluded that wherever there was pain, then they must offer care. And this gave Mr. Oyer his answer. He must offer care where there was pain, and therefore he must reclaim the baby Hikari and look after him. He also made decisions about his writing in Hiroshima. He'd started off as a star when he was still a young man just out of university. He was an unlikely sort of star because he came from a far-flung part of Japan, from a forest village. He was very shy and had a thick country accent. But he managed, when he hadn't been out of university long, to produce a novella called The Catch, which won a national award. So he was, at first, bound for great things in a literary career, but he'd run into the sand. He seemed to have lost his impetus. After his trip to Hiroshima and his decision about Hikari, he decided he would, henceforth, be a voice for the voiceless, and also that he wouldn't be afraid to speak uncomfortable truths. He began by facing up to his own dilemma and writing about a damaged child, but what he did was write it one way in one book, and then take the same situation and write it another way in another book. In two of these books, at least, the parents decided, after a lot of plotting and difficulty, to reclaim the child and make it their own. In another story, though, the parent decided that the child should die and then was haunted by the ghost of the baby. And he made Hikari a hero in these books, sometimes giving him a false name, sometimes giving him his own name. And people did worry that perhaps he was exploiting his son for literary purposes. But he said no, he was actually showing how much his son meant to him, how his son had freed up his writing, and also in a way giving him a voice. And there were other voices too that were going unheard in Japan. He had listened to some of them in Hiroshima, the victims, as he saw it, not just of the Americans and the atomic blast, but of Japan's own aggressions in Asia, which had helped to foment war in the first place. He took the side, too, of the Korean minority in Japan and of the Koreans who'd been mistreated by Japan in the war, the forced laborers, the comfort women. And he took Japan to task quite severely for having declined, as he saw it, from a hopeful nation after the war, one that seemed about to stand up for the weak and embrace peace and renounce war and be a bit of a beacon in Asia because he could see that militarism was growing there and he was determined to stamp it out. Another campaign he fought, really in actions rather than words, was simply by taking Hikari home. 
In Japan, generally, a mentally damaged child would be locked away in an institution and not shown in public. They were seen as shameful. But Hikari had a huge importance to him. When Kenzaburo himself had been a child, living in the forest, he had enjoyed going out at night and sleeping among the trees and dreaming that, like Huckleberry Finn, he could have adventures in the woods. Now, when he took Hikari to the woods at about the age of six, Hikari suddenly spoke his first sentence, which was to identify a bird called a water rail. He had learned the song of the water rail from tapes that his father had been playing to him for several years. He had said nothing all that time, be completely wordless as a child. And then he had suddenly come out with this sentence, which made his father realize that his son had picked up the language of birds, little by little. And that led to Hikari's great appreciation of music, which he even learned to transcribe. And he came in the end to compose himself with great success. So in a sense, Hikari had helped him fulfill his dreams. He had proved in music that he could articulate the voice of his own soul, even though it was dark and he himself was almost wordless. He had provided hope through music, just as his father had hoped that words could. Anne Rowe on Oe Kenzaburo, who's died aged 88. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Sam Westron and Rory Galloway. Our creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Alizé Jean-Baptiste, Kevin Kaners, and Sarah Larniuk. Our assistant producer is Barkley Bram, and extra production help this week came from Maggie Kadifa and Emily Elias. We'll all see you back here on Monday. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.